0: Hello, this is a global podcast from Cyprus scene, bringing you a review from Northern Cyprus.
1: Hello, in this podcast we hear Margaret shared helping Bob Scott relive his memories of when he served the Royal Berkshire Regiment in Cyprus during the late 1950s.
0: I seem to be drawn to stories about the experiences of British ex-national servicemen who served in Cyprus in the 1950s and early 1960s and I've enjoyed piecing together some wonderful memories of those young men, far from home, who probably wondered what had hit them when they arrived in Cyprus, probably the first time a lot of them had ever ventured out of the United Kingdom or even their hometowns. I've enjoyed sharing these memories immensely and I can now share another great story from Bob Scott and his recollections of those happy, sometimes happy, sometimes sad, experiences so many years ago. On a trip to the UK in March 2015, we had an opportunity of meeting up with Bob and spent a few hours chatting with him over a nice meal. It's nice to be able to put a face to a name and it makes the whole process of writing about someone that much easier. Bob joined the Royal Berkshire Regiment in 1956 and spent the last two and a half years of his service in Cyprus. On completing his service in 1960, he returned to England and settled in West Sussex, where he still lives. The last year of his service, he was on detachment from his regiment to HQ50, Independent Inventory Brigade at Kiko East, responsible for internal security of the Nicosia District And at this time, he shared the Suffolk Regiment's dining facilities when back at base. But more than often than not, he was out guarding senior officers from brigade or assisting UK or local police in their duties, often stationed in the police headquarters. It was during this year that Bob says he grew up in the army as he learned so much outside that of an ordinary squaddy life in a regiment. He also remembers manning the machine gun on top of the post office in Luna Park, facing down Ledger Street in Nicosia, whilst with his regiment. It also brings home the taste of those salad rolls. Bob has said,
1: Can someone send me a fresh one, please? Also, on the main thoroughfare outside the moat, there was a guy who sold kebabs from a portable handcart, wrapped in paper so you could eat going along the street. It was the little things like that, which felt like a taste from heaven. Egg and chips cooked in olive oil. We did not want for much, but it had to be good and tasty. As a former British soldier at the time of the mid fifties, I've always been interested in the history of Cyprus. As a young serviceman arriving in Cyprus for the first time, I found myself in very ancient world and yet modern of the time. It took a while to comprehend this wonderful unique lifestyle. Also, the warmth of the people. This brings to the point of an unusual friendship I struck up in 1958 whilst being attached to the police division of HQ in the Turkish sector of Nicosia. On the opposite side to the police HQ entrance was a typical Turkish coffee cafe. In the window sat a gentleman in full Turkish military regalia. How or why, I cannot remember. But we became friends. He could speak very little English, and I could not speak Turkish. No matter, because every time I set out on business, he asked the waiter at the door to help me into the coffee shop to partake a traditional Turkish coffee. Whether it was respect for one soldier for another, I will never know. But I wonder today if there's anyone who knows who this gentleman was. I believe someone might remember a retired Turkish general always in uniform with all his medals on display. I have often wondered over the years who my lone friend was. He always sat in the same seat with his humble bubble pipe. If I was to guess how old, I would think he was about 80 years old. That was in 1958. I wonder if he was a family member of the coffee shop owners.
0: Whilst writing this article, a lot has come to light about the mysterious military gentleman and with the help of Sermon Erdogan in Melbourne, Australia, who has done a great deal of research, <clears throat> the puzzle is slowly unravelling. We now have a name for this military gentleman. He was Ahmet Rasim, a well-known figure in Nicosia, and Bob is over the moon to know a little about his friend. We think Ahmet died on 4th of January, 1963, as we feel that this will be a very interesting story, we intend to publish it separately when we have hopefully all of the facts. If anyone can contribute information about Ahmet Rasim, we would be very grateful to receive it. Sermon himself, together with his brother and sister, have been a feature of an article on our website, resulting in the success of finding his childhood friends from the governor's house in Nicosia where he spent his childhood. Sermon two remembers the military gentleman, Ahmet Racine. We gave Bob the task of recalling some of his memories of his time in Cyprus, and he has kindly put pen to paper, and this is what he has written. Arrival, Cyprus, 1956. We arrived
1: at Limassol Docks on 9th of October, 1956. Our first camp was on the south coast in a valley just down from RAF episcopy a dried riverbed going out towards the sea like a gully between with hills on either side covered in an abundance of vegetation after roughing it on a barren rocky outpost for two and a half months in malta on standby for the sewage crisis washing and shaving from our mess cans in the sea followed by tea made from sea water rotten eggs for breakfast dinner and tea Due to no refrigeration. We had definitely had enough. We had hope of something better from Malta. Oh, sorry, I forgot. This is the army with no expense spared, and there would be no more creature comforts until demob So we buried down in this dried up riverbed, kick bag for a pillow, and watching how you packed your boots, or you could end up with a sore head in the morning. Don't forget about the creepy crawlers over here night as well. Nighttime guard duty was to a man, a searchlight halfway up the hill mounted on top of an old sewage works, all night scanning the camp. Apart from one or two idiots messing around with guns, one causing somebody to get shot in the arm, our first taste of things to come was the reporting of a death of a private George Bayliss, a driver of a Land Rover killed in an ambush. The CEO and others managed to escape. My first operation guard duty was the perimeter fence surrounding RAF Akateri Air Base, at which I ended up in Decayla BMH with food and after being fed bully beef by the RAF. One amusing incident but could have been more serious. One evening a group had been invited to the camp cinema at RAF Episcopie. After the film was over, all was stood in the back of a bed for three tunner holding on to the canopy bars as it was not far down the mountainside to camp. We pulled up at the exit barrier to turn right down the hill and for some unexplainable reason the truck slid sideways in a slow motion onto its side and came to rest over a three-foot embankment. I was escorted to the vehicle and jumped from the hatch of the cab, went to the rear of the truck where the guys were letting go of the canopy bars and walking out one by one all in slow motion. Just like a Laurel and Hardy film, any further and it would have been a different story. The second incident was having to jump clear from an overturned lorry on which I was riding escort through the top of the driver's cab, an Austin 1 tonner driven by Tom Collins, HQ company driver. I even have the date of this incident, 27th of March, 1957. On the way up to Trudos, Tom was overtaken in another parked vehicle when suddenly the road narrowed and he hit a bolt on the side of the road which caused the truck to flip on its side. Primusol Camp. This was January 1957. It was then the regiment came under the three brigade responsibility for the security of the whole of the island. The camp was west of Nicosia at the end of the runway opposite side of the Trudos Road. Hunter jet aircraft were taking off on sorties over Suez and the Middle East. They were a nightmare taking off at some ungodly time of the morning, rising skyward over the camp, shattering all peace and quiet of a night's sleep with the tense fly sheets flapping all over the place due to the down draft of the aircraft. Not a good memory, but I feel I must mention the latrines, a massive deep burial pit. They were lined twice a day They were drilled into rock with a wooden tree perch, consisting of two white walks, one at each end and a tree trunk for a perch. No room for embarrassment here. Of course, there were work duties. These consisted of patrols for stop and search. There were guard duties in and out of camps, two hours on, four hours off, right through the night from 8 p.m. until 8 a.m. External journeys could be a week or three weeks at a time, returning to camp for a weekend's rest before starting another one. Maybe an airfield or an electrical substation, even a remote police station that might come under attack. Mines for explosives or government house, one never knew what or why most of the time we were on autopilot. Then for a change, we would throw a cord around a village that was suspected of harbouring a, a terrorist. A unit of about up to twenty trucks would leave in a convoy, and once hitting the main road, there would be side lights only on the first and last trucks in the convoy. We would arrive at our destination at about 2.30 AM, throw a cordon around the village in perfect quietness and have all secured by 3 AM. Early in the morning, announcements would be made for the villagers to move to a secure area, normally a school playground, whilst the properties were searched. Of course. We had to proceed with caution in case if a booby trap had been set. We also had mountain patrols across the lots Mountains to try and flush out terrorists from their mountain hideaways. Usually in caves, it was hard game, but someone had to do it. We would set up a camp with two men in bivouac tents and two of us left behind to guard the encampment. On one hot and humid night, I felt like a quick bit to call cool off. Before the guys had left on their recce, they had downed a mountain stream just big enough for a few of us to cool off in. By day, this was great and very refreshing. On this particular night, I asked the other guy on duty to keep an eye out whilst I took a dip. Well, I took a plunge and came out quicker than I went in. At night, the water flowed across the rocks from up on high. It had extremely cooling effect on the flowing waters so it was one plunge never to be repeated. Another task we were trained to perform was helicopter descent from various heights for forward movement required in an urgent situation. So often it could see airport for training. It was a Sycamore helicopter for this purpose and beside the pilot and co-pilot, these helicopters carried four passengers who sat on the floor space. The first thing to be mastered was jumping from a hovering copter at height three feet above the ground, followed by a rise to jump out at 10 feet, always running clear to the front of the copter so the pilot could count how many people were out of the copter. Now a new task, helicopter rising to 30 feet and descend via a knotted rope to simulate being dropped into a forest area, a dangerous maneuver with rope attached to the rear of the pilot seat the rope had three knots contained and in the first two knots which were most important were placed evenly above the copter floor one knot in the copter the other one outside the first man legs over the side throughout the rope tapped the pilot seat and he was ready to descend now the most important part of the take hold of the rope via the lower knot outside the copter and make certain there was no slack in the rope that might cause a jolt and result in losing your grip with dire consequence. Once okay, it was hand over hand with rope grip between one's legs and down. You go out to the front of the helicopter to be counted by the pilot. The tough years of 1957 1958. These were the most troublesome times when all units were stretched to the limits Not only the nervous periods behind us now, but still up front in the memory that a newspaper journalist, reporter, and active terrorist, Nicholas Sampson, turned Street into the notorious murder mile, leaving his office a couple of streets away, shooting his target in the back, quickly disappearing, only to return a few minutes later to report on the crime. Here was the reason for the army to deploy a machine gun post on top of the old post office. Samson had no qualms about whom he killed. Husbands and wives, off-duty service personnel, policemen, even his own Greek people. Truly a man of no conscience, so it was no wonder as we entered the next phase of operation, guys were more than jumpy, not knowing where the next bullet or homemade explosive device was coming from. Who did we trust? Truthfully, many on all sides. Why? Because we had to get along with them living side by side. But this is not to say we were not cautious, because we were. Very cautious, read a face, look for signs of nervousness or a a sudden quick movement. We were not there to kill, but to preserve life, thereby preserving our own. So provocation led to lots of riots, mostly carried out by the Turkish Cypriots. Why? Mostly in provocation or revenge through some ghastly act, so while some regiments were on operation in the Trudos Range, others were trying to keep the peace in the walled cities of Nicosia and Famagusta, which left many men in dangerous circumstances. On one occasion, vastly outnumbered and likely to be able to run at any moment, a young second lieutenant turned to us and said, in a moment I'm going to give you an order to fix bayonets and give the order to present bayonets, but no shots are to be fired. Do you hear me? Yes, sir. The order was given and we were ready to charge. Gradually, the crowd began to disperse. His gamb had paid off, so we all lived for another day. February 1957, Operation Green Dragon, a Burma-style operation where donkeys were used to carry a central kit, such as radio sets, then back to camp three days before the next biggie. 10 weeks in the mountains, Operation Black Mac, this is where the notorious terrorist effects NCO was killed and four others captured. At the end of 1957, I was called to the I was often told that the regiment from January 1958 would transfer from 3rd Brigade to 50 Brigade, so he would like me to go on an NCO's cadre or go on detachment to the HQ's 50 Independent Infantry Brigade. The Colonel said, go away and think about it. I recently met some guys from HQ and thought how smart they looked and said how much they enjoyed it. I did not want to be a career soldier, so I did not see the point of becoming a corporal. So at the beginning of January 1958, it was off to Brigade HQ. 1957, 1958, Nicholas Sampson and Ledger Street, which he notoriously turned into the Murder Mire, was very much behind us now. Two years of much of the same mountain operations and city riots plus continued guard duties at important places all over the island. That could be used for the acts of terrorism, which resulted in the regiment on mounting operation and trying to control city riots from both sides and trying to restore calm. The Greek riots in Nicosia were mainly congregated at the bottom of Ledger Street, where it meets the Mason-Dixon line. The border between the two communities and really little room for the troops to manoeuvre and where rocks and boulders would be dropped from overhead balconies so the order of the day was riot gear and steel helmets Turkish rights on on the whole were easier to deal with a couple of very large ones did take place and at times got a bit hairy but mostly their format was mostly the same relying on the british fair play women and children at the rear younger males in front of them and main protestant in front of the rest. So a plan had been devised to mount a dye spray using vegetable dye and compressed air on the back of a Land Rover. The theory was to drive up to close to the front of the protesters, a quick spray, reverse, and get out of there as quickly as possible. The idea being that the protester at the front could be picked up later for questioning. Great in theory. The only time it was used, as far as I know, was a riot outside the Turkish bank just up the street from the Police HQ. The bank had a massive pair of green doors with a very large pair of brass door knobs, hexagonal in shape, one per door. The riot on this occasion was in front of the bank, so at the height of the riot, in went the Land Rover only to be met by a passing of the waves right in front of the bank doors. So instead of green doors, they ended up bright orange. Brigade HQ was the start of me growing up in army terms, a whole different concept to what I had been used to in the regiment. Mixing with a few guys posted from other regiments and units, but more so with the top military brass, guards of honour, escorts to senior officers, working with the UK and local police out of the divisional police HQ in Natatoke Square escorting local police with announcements of curfew, sometimes announced and then myself in both Turkish and Greek talked to me by the local police. Now a puzzle for me, whilst we did get some free time to go into town and visit the Udvaras who, I know some regiments seem to be spending a lot of time enjoying life. I don't begrudge them one bit, but I wonder how that could happen as quite often hours when we had a chance were curtailed by curfews. I spent almost two and a half years in Cyprus, and in that time I had ten days local leave in Carinia.
0: This British national servicemen, so far from home, had a real eye-opener when they were suddenly thrust into the Cyprus emergency. But there were some light-hearted moments, and Bob has recalled some quirks which he looks back on with amusement. Quirks of servicemen serving in Cyprus,
1: such as favourite songs of the period. Do you remember Green Door by Frankie Vaughan? We had a store's tent with a painted green door, so when everybody went past it, they started singing. Green Door, who's behind that? Green Door. There was also Harry Balifonte. This is my island in the sun. Very appropriate for where we were stationed. There was the famous female singer Ruby Murray. We had a Bob Murray. I named him Ruby and it became his nickname for the rest of his life. I have a picture of me holding up a newspaper announcing Bill Haley arriving at Southampton Docks. It said, dig that dockside rock and roll.
0: The following quirk is my favorite, as I remember the goon show all those years ago and the Ying Tong song.
1: Remembering this still makes me smile. Whilst on an operation in Trudos, the trucks were all lined up in an Indian wagon-style train of a semicircle and parked opposite was the signals communication box van with two speakers on the roof. This was in the midst of a very large house stall. All of a sudden, there was a blare from the speakers, and, and two signalers started Spike Milligan's goon show piece of Ying Tong Song, Ying Tong Ying Tong Ying Tong Ying Tong Ying Tong Ying Tong, it light bow. What a laugh we had! A memorable moment. So you can imagine a couple of idiot signalers in the middle of the mountain singing this. As I recall, they did a good job of it. Still makes me smile just thinking about it. At the end of 1958, just prior to going to Brigade HQ, I was on one of my last guard duties with the regiment on Larnaca Beach. A gravel crushing plant was a permanent structure on the beach used for crushing large pebbles and boulders for road making. It was a government-run plant, so fair game for the terrorist. All lit up at night on this occasion, I was patrolling the beach when a machine gun started to fire at me close enough t- to feel the draft of the bullets. I dived seaward behind a pile of pebbles, crawled on my stomach back to the compound where the corporal guard was re- reaching up for the phone to call out reinforcements. The rest of the guards were laid flat on the floor. I was coming to the end of my tour of duty in 1959, returning from Nicosia to Brigade HQ just past the General Hospital on the left, approaching the bridge over the dried up riverbed, I was waved down by Royal Military Police and, asking what was wrong, was told they required my assistance as I had a Belgian FN rifle. I was told three AOKA youths had set fire to the Turkish consulate CAR, the local police were in pursuit but only had pistols. The two youths had crossed the riverbed heading for a cemetery. The third had turned right towards the bridge we had just crossed. By now, a crowd was beginning to gather. Suddenly, I was getting orders from behind, so I opened fire, which was very difficult running over rocks and boulders. Anyway, I managed to let off three single shots. The third grazed his head. He stopped, put his hands in the air, and the local police arrested him. So eventually my army service in Cyprus came to an end. There were good times and bad times, but looking back, it was a great experience with a great bunch of lads and I must have had a guardian angel as I'm still here to tell the tale. However, not always so lucky and never to be forgotten is my old pal, Ian Reginald Collins. He was killed after only a few months in Cyprus in 1957. We were in the Cubs and Scouts together. He is always in my thoughts.